Hi, this is Brian Nestandi, and welcome once again to Political Journeys. Today's guest is Ed Rollins, and Ed has uh, had a great career. I'm sure many of you have seen him on television commentating on uh, particular races and, and politics in general. Ed started uh, working for Ronald Reagan in the 1970s, uh, worked in his presidential race and, and many other presidential races after that, and has a lot of great stories, a lot of great insight, and I hope you enjoy the episode. And once again, thank you for listening. Ed Rollins, thank you so much for joining us on Political Journeys, where we talk about events and influences that shape one's political views. And you've had a illustrious career going from city of Vallejo to the White House and would love to hear what, what shaped your views, what influenced you as a young man or a young kid and into your adulthood. So I grew up in, okay. Uh, I, I grew up in a, in a uh, Boston Irish Catholic Democrat family. My parents moved when I was four years old from Boston to Vallejo. My dad had, had been stationed there during the war and uh, always wanted to come back. So I went through one winter in Boston and moved his family back to California. That was in 19, 19- 47 uh and uh you know he was uh he was a hard-working guy worked every day in the shipyard for many many years and uh but the inclination of my family was pretty much democrat uh obviously boston irish catholic kennedy in 1960 was very important uh and was one of my first influences uh, i became sort of a protege uh of, uh, of the district attorney's wife in Vallejo, who was sort of the county chairman of the democratic party did a few things uh got involved in campaigns good well, friend of my dad's go ahead well, i was gonna ask you so your were your parents involved in politics did they follow up much did they followed it uh, obviously they were they were uh, they weren't participants that in, in the sense that the, my dad was a shipyard worker so it wasn't like he was uh active in the assembly but they were aware of what was going on and, and, and did they talk about it much like it you know around uh, the house when you were a little we, kid yeah we talked we talked you know and obviously uh you know, when I was junior in high school, is when Kennedy was running. So obviously, uh, he was he was front and center. Um, and I started. I think I watched my first convention in 1952 uh, in Vallejo. Uh, the two presidential candidates, uh, Eisenhower and Stevenson, came to Vallejo for big rallies. Uh, really, was, they, uh, that's yeah. interesting. How they picked Vallejo. Yeah. Uh, I think it was an overwhelming Democrat town, and I think they used to just uh, when when they used to do, you know, they'd come. Uh, you know, big 20,000, 30,000 people rallies. Uh, so uh, that's that's when I first first met a president was uh, was uh, Eisenhower, uh, and they returned again in '56. So uh, you know, it was just you know, in school I, I was always active. I was a student body president in high school, uh, oh. in, in community college. Uh, and, and, and at that and point, think, you were still a Democrat. Then going into I was I was a Democrat up till 1972. I changed. Okay, uh, so you were in 1972. I was. Uh, so, but going into uh, community college, you describe your 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 Democrat. Was, your dad's a Democrat. Was, your mom. I was Democrat. Democrat family, uh, and basically uh, a uh, middle of the road Democrat, a Kennedy Democrat. Uh, you what? know, conservative conservative Democrat. I mean, I think that I think the real epitome of my background was you know people who were hardworking. some were labor guys uh, my dad was a labor leader that's what i was going to ask if he was in the union so the answer is he was yes. in the union uh, when the, when uh, president kennedy allowed federal employees to unionize he was one of the founders of the and one of the first presidents of the electrical workers uh, and uh, so there was, oh well, uh, that's that's significant then that was very, very significant yeah uh, so uh, 
you know, and, and I think to a certain extent, he, he, my dad, my dad was a conservative, uh, you know, very much a law and order guy and, and uh, hardworking guy. So, uh, but those, those were sort of the value systems that I, that I grew up with. Um, and I, I think the key was, uh, I, when I went to, I worked on a poverty program, uh, when I was in community college and, uh, actually took a year off to go on one of the OEO programs in 1964, 65 and, uh, in Oakland, uh, and sort of saw the, the failures of the Lyndon Johnson poverty programs and, and, uh, did you, you know, go in there was, thinking it was going to be successful? This is a good idea, yeah, and you got I there. And, and obviously, uh, you know, I was uh, I was a do-gooder in those days, and uh, uh, so it was it was a very influential. You know, Vallejo was a Vallejo was a very unique town in the sense that it was a town of about forty thousand people, and fifteen thousand men worked in the shipyard. So everybody's dad worked in the wow, shipyard, uh, and and uh, they built all this public housing during the war. So most of the shipyard workers' families lived in mm-hmm. in public housing. Uh, you know, so you grew up with it with African Americans and Mexicans and Filipinos and all the rest of it, you all played ball together and you basically, uh, there wasn't any of the, the racial animosity that other people have obviously had later on. So I used to always say it was kind of a classless society. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It was just, right. everybody's dad worked in the shipyard. You Egalitarian know, just, uh, to a degree, I guess. Very, very, very much so. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there wasn't any real wealth in the town. The people who were well-to-do were basically people that run the, run the horror houses and the, and the, <laughs> and the liquor, the liquor establishments during the war. And, and then sort of the professional services of lawyers and doctors and, then, and what have you. But, and a lot of them was in San Francisco than the wealth, I would guess. And, they definitely yes, and you know and that was obviously that was that was an influence. Was you know, San Francisco was close by, and that's where we went for a lot of this. So social, so social things. In '64, then uh, Johnson, do you start? Tell me then that where you start to think, ah, what's what's going on, in the Democrat Party? Well, you, not till '72. So you saw the '68 convention and and what happened there? I, or? Saw, I saw the '68 convention, and actually, what I had done at that point in time, a real turning point for me was. Uh, I went to Cal State Chico, and I was student body president there. And I ended up getting an internship at the state assembly. Uh, I was a P, I was a both PE major and political science major, and I uh, went to work in the speaker's office. Jesse Unruh uh, oh, yeah. sort of became sort of became my mentor. That's a pretty good gig and right off the bat there. A pretty good gig right off the bat is right, yeah. and and uh, and he was a wonderful mentor. And uh, you know, I didn't know what a Republican was. I'd never met a Republican only in my life. Uh, maybe, maybe the <laughs> Maybe the, maybe the nuns hiding behind the veils were Republican. <laughs> certainly, certainly nobody in Vallejo was was front and center as a Republican. So I, I anyways worked for Unruh, got, a, got my first taste of the of the, the assembly, um, and then uh, I worked in Bobby Kennedy's campaign uh, when he ran for president. Uh, Unruh was a state chairman, and of course the night he was assassinated, uh, uh, I was working uh, in, in Northern California, and obviously it was very very uh, disturbing point and you know it, it uh i would say he was one of my first first i actually had lunch with him a week before he was murdered wow and uh you know so i sort of got a little disillusioned with politics i, I was just gonna uh, ask did it, did it kind of sure. like the air let out of the balloon because he was such it, a figure particularly going into the future you think back bobby Kennedy, everybody just loved him and and did it yeah. did it just kind of deflate the democrat party it, for it, a moment it, it, it took totally deflated the Democratic Party for me. I could not, I mean, I, I'm sure I voted for Humphrey, but it, it, my enthusiasm was certainly not not there. And I uh, I left California uh, in 1969. I went off to Washington University in St. Louis, and I was I was offered a, a teaching job there, and I basically uh, ended up, uh, I was the assistant dean of students initially and ended up being the dean of students uh, at a very young age. I was about 28, and this is when all the riots of the 69 to 72 period where 
uh, Washington University was a very active campus in St. Louis and burnt down the ROTC buildings and smashed the oh, library wow. that had been built by John Olin. I was sort of the person on the front line every night. Uh, uh, what was so that, that like? Kind of, I mean, was there? Was... I, it was, you know, for young for young guy, I was much older than the than the students. Uh, yeah. you know, it was very disturbing to me because I'm kind of a law and order guy, and used to have big fights with others in the administration who would say when the kids wanted to take over the administration bill, and they said, "Well, let them have it." And I said, "No, you don't do that. That's wow. not. You don't let them go across the street and break into houses. You don't let them come on your building and break in, in the university." So, you know, I was kind of I was getting more conservative by the day. Obviously, the faculty was uh, was. Uh, far more left than i was and and i just sort of went through a real examination uh, uh what did you think of California. the vietnam war then what, what did you think about well, I, 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 our I, intervention I, and it was it was i was very pro the war and i had the i had broke my back my senior year in high school i was a football player and i broke three vertebrae in my back so i had two surgeries right out of high school wow and so i tried to get in the marine corps in vallejo you either you know it was a, it was a navy town and you had marines and you had sailors and so when I was about uh, 19, uh, you know, I was very pro-war, and I went, decided I wanted to go, uh, and I tried to enlist, and, and they wouldn't take me because of my back. And uh, so I, I was very pro-Vietnam, uh, very pro-the military, uh, as I have been most of my life, and felt very guilty because I came back out, and even though I had multiple back surgeries after that, I played sports. I came back, mm. I played football, I boxed, and I felt, why can't I go uh, and and I forget a Marine recruiter said to me one day, listen, son, if you get hurt on the football field, someone comes out and pulls you to the side, and take you in an ambulance somewhere. If you get hurt in the jungle, someone has to go out and put their life at risk. So we're not, we're yeah. not going to take you in the Marine Corps. What a way and I argued, you. Just, yeah. And I said, you know, is there something else I can do? And they said, no, at this point in time, we need to meet frontline people. So, yeah. so I always, I always was, I always had real guilt about, about not going. And, and Vallejo was kind of a hotbed, uh, we had Travis Air Force Base, which was 15 miles up the road, is where all the Vietnam bodies came back every week. And, and you know, we were very aware of the of the war and very aware of the of the protests across the country. And I what did your parents was, think of it? Did your parents have an opinion? Do you remember? My father, my father had been in the service, uh, and basically, you know, he was very pro pro war. And and uh, you know, we just thought at that point in time, if the president thinks we need to be there, we need to be there. Uh, you know, and I, as I've learned over the years, that sometimes presidents aren't always right. And uh, Obviously, as I reflected back on that war, no disrespect to the to the men who fought there, um, you know, it was uh, a lot of a lot of bad decisions. And then, of course, I was back on a campus when a lot of these young men came back and tried to go back to school and saw sort of the uh, the anger and the and the protest yeah. aimed towards them. So one of the things I did at Chico, which obviously started my political career too, was uh, all these campuses trying to get rid of their ROTCs, and, and we had you know. A lot of conservative kids so i tried to get the army to give us a rotc center at chico and i um, uh, became very close with uh, assemblyman ray johnson whose son was a was a helicopter pilot in vietnam, vietnam three tours of duty and, and he helped me with the pro we didn't get we didn't get a rotc program because they decided not to need more but i was so i was very very pro war very pro uh, uh you know sort of opposite of what most of the people were on on the campuses of california not necessarily chico which is a pretty conservative campus but the protests at Chico were small, and they, uh, but they were they were loud and wide across California and Berkeley and you know places where I'd gone up. So uh, I was very aware of it. So as you're saying, you're so, starting to drift and maybe thinking, okay, maybe Democrat Party. Yeah, and I, and I got what happened in uh, uh, Ray Johnson, uh, the assemblyman, eventually offered me a job. Was as he a Republican chief of staff. or Democrat? He was a Republican. Oh, okay. And he was a wonderful man and, and a great influence on me. And I said, you know what? 
when he came to me and offered me the job, I said, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. And he said, well, you may may not be as Democratic as you think. Uh, he said, the only thing I ask you to do is, uh, you know, I'm the one that got elected. You can argue with me about any issue, but I'm, I get the vote and you can't second guess. So he was a wonderful mentor for me. And basically, uh, you know, it was uh, sort of the beginning of my, my life in Sacramento. Uh, and I went from there. I uh, came, I came back from Washington university in 72. Uh, I went to work with your dad, as a matter of fact, in the Nixon campaign. Uh, hmm. And, uh, uh, your dad, Lynn Nofsinger, and others were very involved in the Nixon campaign. And so you had, fl- had was, you formally switched parties then at that point? Did you I switched right at that point in time. I, I had come back, and, and uh, uh, the, uh, Mon- uh, Bob Monaghan, who had been the speaker, mm-hmm. Republican speaker, asked me if I would basically uh, uh, play a role and run his reelection campaign. He was from the Stockton area and also work in the Nixon campaign. So I, I moved to Stockton went in to change my registration and I wasn't sure what I was going to be. I said, you know, I'm definitely not a Democrat. Maybe I'll register as an independent. And the, uh, the county register, uh, she'd seen my picture in the paper running the Nixon campaign. And she said, I guess I don't, I guess I don't need to ask you your registration. She just checked the box. So I said, and I've, I've, uh, I've never regretted that decision. And, and uh, uh, that was 1972. So, so you, uh, did, were you thinking at this point about your profession? Did you, did you... No, no, it was just, it was, it was, uh, I liked politics. It was, a, it was a job. Uh, you know, I was, what I really wanted to do out of, out of college was go off and be a football coach and teach civics. Uh, huh. uh, and, uh, and there was a teacher glut at that point in time. And I just kind of just kept getting opportunities to, to go into politics and stay into politics. And so I, I just sort of followed the, as they say in California, you jump on the, jump on the surfboard and follow the wave. And that's, that's sort of what I did. So, so you, you, you had a pretty rapid, Something. I mean, that, that's you had you had pretty good jobs right away in politics, and I did. And, I and and I think I think my my uh, I worked very hard. Uh, no one ever outworked me. Uh, you know, I, sixteen hour days are no big deal for me, and uh, and and I understood the game very quickly. I, I always had pretty good instincts, and I say about political instincts, it's kind of like speed. You either have it or you don't have it. Uh, you, you can't make a slow kid fast. You can make a fast kid faster. And you can't make someone who has no political instincts have some political instincts. I had pretty good political instincts. I understood people pretty well. And um, the combination of having worked in the Democratic Party and the poverty programs and what have you, I, I knew the Democratic Party pretty well. And Unru, Unru was a, as I said, was a great mentor. So I, when I became a Republican, I sort of knew how Democrats did it, uh, which helped me to always sort of figure out how we should do it. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's pretty unique to have that at that young age have that retrospect over that complete perspective of Republican and Democrat party. Yeah. And people don't really realize, but what you said is so true about your political instincts that comes out in probably different ways. People may not recognize at the time, but right. the person you're working for just has that gut feeling. That guy knows what he's doing. I trust him. And that's invaluable as far as a political well, it, 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 person. Absolutely isn't. And after, after the Nixon campaign, I went back to work for Bob Monaghan. It was the minority leader in the assembly. Um, your dad was an assemblyman at that point in time, and, mm-hmm. and I guess it was just shortly after that, but I first met your dad uh, in '72. And uh, so Monaghan then was offered a job in uh, the, the number two guy in the Department of Transportation. Uh, he'd been close to Nixon, and so he had a large staff and came to me one day and he said, "Would you like to go back to Washington with me?" And I said, "Sure, would love to." And that uh, obviously opened up a lot of doors. Uh, uh, this was '70 February '73. Uh, got back there. We had all the Watergate experiences. Uh, um, I got detailed. I was doing congressional relations. I got detailed to be part of the White House team. 
helping the helping the president's team work on the hill. So, so tell me what that so, was like though with Watergate coming down. Where it was everyone? Well, saying, oh, it was, my God, it was sort of like you know. I, again, I'm again I'm a new Republican. Uh, uh, I'm thinking every day, my goodness, this is uh, uh, you know I didn't I didn't have I didn't have a real affection for Nixon at that point in time. I got to know him very well later in life realized what an extraordinary man he was but uh, at that point in time he was just the president uh, and I was part of his party so uh, you know Washington was very exciting in the beginning and then obviously day by day the Watergate stories kept coming out and you know it was very long very fascinating year and you know you sort of sit there every day thinking my god they shouldn't be doing this uh, uh, and I always say it was my PhD in political science of how not to do something yeah. and uh, you know I saw I saw it unravel uh, I've seen many campaigns and many other political people make fundamental mistakes. And the, the biggest fundamental is whatever you do, don't cover it up. Or don't uh, the cover up is far worse than the than the, than, than, than the sin at first. But, uh, so for me, it was a, it was an extraordinary experience, and uh, and I was very lucky because Monaghan had a big staff, and I was the only one he took back to Washington with him. So um, and I, you know, and that kind of opened up that whole that whole horizon for me. And when and you eventually, I know you. You uh, headed up the NRCC, didn't you? Your I did. That was after uh, I came back uh, to California uh, uh, after after uh, uh, the Carter administration, and I became the caucus director in the state assembly. Uh, that's when your dad was. Your dad was there. Okay, so you were. And, well, that's interesting. So you were a caucus director. Right. So that was seventy six. You said roughly. Uh, actually, it was seventy nine. Okay, seventy nine. Uh, seventy nine and eighty, and then I went back. Uh, uh, to the communications with uh, Nofziger, uh who I brought back to work with me. We'd been old friends. He'd been he'd been the uh, press secretary for Reagan for a long time, and a great great friend and a great mentor to me. And so uh, um, when he became the White House political director, he asked me if I'd come back to Washington and be his deputy. And that put me in the White House. Uh, that, that's a big he, job. How old were you then at that point? I was uh, let's see, it was uh, about about uh, thirty, I think thirty five. Uh, no, almost. Uh, I was born in '43, so this was '73. Was when I first okay. went to Washington, and then uh, in '80, I was obviously, uh, you know, getting up there, uh, yeah. getting almost get, get almost to fifty. But uh, no, no, you're 40, were, yeah, you're right, still, thirty-seven. I was still, so. I was, yeah, I was I was young. No, and, but you're in the uh, White House then, in a top job. I was in the White House and Lofsinger is close uh, to to the president, obviously. President and and uh, and he basically had said from the beginning he was only going to stay a year. So after the president got shot and some of the internal battles, he didn't like he didn't like the bureaucracy. Of, he liked politics. He didn't like the, the White House and he didn't like to go to meetings and stuff like that. So I, I went to every meeting. I was a sort of the person of judicial selection panel and budget panels and all that kind of stuff. And then he uh, he resigned as of January '82, uh, but he resigned early and I and, he, and I was selected to be his his uh, successor. So I was named, I guess, in November of '81. Uh, first year as the assistant the president which is the highest level so uh, yeah and you're the political director then political less, director, right? yeah that's, yep, that's what it was that's that's a huge job so then you're working with deaver with meese and meese deaver meese uh you know sort of the same level they all were and and uh, uh and then basically in 83 uh one day the president in march of 83 uh president called me over the oval office and he said uh I'm not sure I'm going to run for re-election, but if I am going to run for election, someone better start thinking about it. So I, I want you, I want you to be, I want if I run, I want you to be my campaign manager. Uh, wow! So he and, literally and wasn't he really, really wasn't sure whether or not he was going to run. He wasn't sure he was going to run, and, and, and interestingly enough, uh, right up until 
he didn't announce until January of the 80, 84. Uh, and we went out and we left the White House. Uh, Lee Atwater was my deputy and uh, Lee, we closed the political office in the White House and moved it over to the campaign in October. Uh, we sort of planned all summer putting people in place and what have you. And, and, but we had to finally, so I, I never forget, I go into the president, I said, Mr. President, I have to leave here because we, you know, legally I have to set up the campaign. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd feel much better if you would tell me that you're really going to run this. Uh, and I said, I'm giving up my big office, my big car, my big job here in the White House. He said, Ed, I'm going to feel very good that if I do make that decision, I'll have a good man over there running it. So <laughs> I literally a great walked non-answer. I walked, out, I walked out and I went to Deaver and I went to Baker and I went to Meese and I said, has he said to any of you that he's actually going to run? And Deaver said, well, I'm sure he's going to run. I said, did he actually say to you he's going to run? Uh, and he said, no. Uh, but, you know, all the signs are there that he's going to run. Uh, and what I found out later is that Mrs. Reagan didn't really want him to run for re-election. He'd huh. been shot, obviously. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, and he struggled. And, uh, you know, I had a conversation with him once, uh, you know, had many conversations with him. I had a very serious conversation with him once uh, later on about, uh, you know, why, why, why do we drag this thing out? Why just... He said, I wasn't sure. He said, being perfectly honest, I wasn't sure Bush could win. We had more to finish. Uh, but, you know, I'd have been I'd have been perfectly content to have gone back to California after one term. And obviously, uh, uh, so make a long story short, we went out, set up the campaign. There's no books on how to set up a campaign. Uh, Lee Atwater and I were in Bay Buchanan, who'd been the, been the treasurer of the 80 campaign went out and three of us sort of set up the campaign what was that water like what was his personality uh, well he was a young, he was a young young kid when I, I hired him when he was when he was a young kid he, he had uh, uh he was a lot of energy uh, uh kind of always needed adult supervision as i'd say he never quite knew what he was going to get into um but he was uh, he was smart uh, uh not non-stop energy worked very very hard uh, and and uh, so he'd been, uh, I made him my deputy in the White House and he became my deputy uh, in the re-election campaign. Uh, and he kind of had and, that aura of kind of being devious. I mean, just because of what he Well, he was, he was, was, he was you or? know, as I said, as I said, you always had to watch him. Uh, okay. uh, you know, it was always. You had to uh, double check to, his uh, thoughts and ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had to, had to, had to sort of make sure that his, uh, his instincts uh, weren't, weren't, uh, weren't, uh, off off track uh, and you know i'm i'm very much a, an abider of the rules whatever the rules are tell me what the rules are i'll stay within the lines uh, yeah. and uh, and lee was sort of tell me where the rules are and tell me how to get across the border <laughs> uh so uh and i and, and no no disrespect to him and, and obviously he said had a tragic tragic ending yeah. but uh, a lot of energy a lot of strength uh and we were a good team together probably a far better team together than either one of us ever were so what do you, what, and, and, what did you think of the chances and going into the election um does it look like okay this we well, can do it, this or it, was there saying hey, well wait the a interesting minute. thing is we were we were way behind i never forget i came back from the march meeting with the president march of 83 and i go back to, to my office and and uh, lee comes running in he said you know what what did the meet what did the meeting about you about i said the president asked me if i wanted to run his campaign and of course, Lee was ecstatic. He, he couldn't stand the White House meetings and that kind of stuff. So he was a campaign. And, I, and he said, well, why aren't you euphoric? I said, Lee, the there's three guys beating the president pretty badly right now. Uh, 
Mondale Glenn and, and uh, Hart wasn't in the race at that point in time. Uh, his approval ratings are, you know, about 35%. Were uh, they really that uh, low? Oh, they're terrible. They're terrible in, in March of 83. Wow. You know, the recession was so hard. We, yeah. had, we had the troops in Brut. And so I said, you know, this, we, we may be going out to end the Reagan Reagan, <laughs> Reagan uh, revolution by, by losing a campaign. But anyways, to make a long story short, we started, started to work. We put together a great team. The economy turned back around. He was a great candidate. Uh, you know, we never, never thought we could go out and win, uh, 49 states and and uh you know it was and you had public finance i mean the interesting thing at that point in time we were the first campaign to, to not have any super PACs or private money it was all public money huh. and uh so uh I, I chuckle when i think of this uh, congressional race in georgia which is over 50 million dollars isn't that amazing i don't even know how you spend that much money the two yeah. presidential races in 1984 after they were the nominees Mondale and Reagan got a check for forty million dollars, forty million four hundred thousand dollars, and with that money we ran a national campaign. We did national advertising. We didn't spend the enormous sums of money on advertising that they do today, where they go twenty-four hour a day yeah. nonstop. But we had we had a nationwide campaign. We went on and did a massive voter registration program, uh, which I'd sort of learned from the Nixon days. Uh, we registered seven million new voters, uh, and uh, basically. Uh, you know, had a very disciplined campaign, an extraordinary campaign. Had over six hundred thousand volunteers, probably the most ever. Uh, and how, wait, how many things. volunteers? Six hundred thousand volunteers wow. across the country. And and uh, that's an astonishing you know, number. Line, it was an astonishing, but we were very very volunteer oriented. We, uh, you know, we, we sort of we we recruited we recruited volunteers everywhere. Uh, we had an extraordinary group of people. Uh, and the interesting thing is you start a presidential campaign, as I said, there's six, seven people. And no computers, by the way. When you say 600,000 no, people, no, there's no, no computers. computers. No cell phones. Right. No cell phones. Uh, 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 you know, and, and the reality was that, uh, you know, when you when I started laying out the, the game plan, um, you know, the first, first few weeks, every decision is made by me, you know, from – the color of the bumper strips to the slogans to who's going to be hired. Uh, and, and I had become very friendly with Richard Nixon over the course of this period of time. And Nixon would talk to me every week and he'd say to me, Ed, what you have to understand about running a campaign, he said, is every day you have to give something up. Uh, hmm. you have to, de- you have to delegate a responsibility. You have to always So there's three kinds of, of leaders, three kinds of generals. He said, there's the general like Patton who's in the first tank and he's out there leading his men being shot at and everything else and knows the face of the battle and then there's the then there's the general that sits in the pentagon and watches the war from afar and he said what you have to think of is you're a general in a helicopter above the battlefield uh so that you can always see what's going on but you're not in the battle itself and your men don't have to worry about you getting shot and what have you hmm. and he says you always have to get above it and 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 that's a lesson i learned a long time ago so uh and he was a thinker wasn't he Always oh, big, big thinker, very yeah. big thinker, and and uh, you know when you think about that, I mean you've been in campaigns, you know that your, your family has been. The, in the midst of a campaign, when everything is going, you know you, you have to be very strategic. You have to you have to always be thinking ahead, uh, and and uh, I think that was one of the great skills that he helped me with. So, so the the key for me is I had wonderful mentors, Nofziger, Monaghan, uh, obviously Nixon, uh, uh, and, and and many others along the way that uh, that helped me immeasurably. And what I've always tried to do since then. I've always tried to help young people. I've always had uh, a lot of people that, and you know, and, and basically take care of your young people when they when they go into a campaign. Make sure they get jobs afterwards mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. So, uh, what did you see 
changing in the well, it just seems to me, but you can tell me, the Republican Party was at its height, it seemed like, at least, well, I guess I was, my 20s when Reagan was president, and it just seemed like the glory days for the Republican Party, and then the change, so, particularly in California, slowly started, it, it changed, and, and things well, my, my, get... my, my, what I did is, having grown up in the Democrat family, uh, I always envisioned, you always have to go back and think of people that you actually know, you know, when you're, when you're sitting in the actually when I was running the assembly races in California, I'm sitting in the small office of Sacramento, actually right down the hall from your dad and basically thinking about 80 races, uh, talking to consultants a little bit when you're running a presidential campaign, you know, you're running 50 state campaigns. You're not running a a national campaign as much as you are running 50 state Mm -hmm. campaigns. And so what I did is I divided it up into five regions. I basically had a campaign manager in each one, those state chairmen all had to go go through those people. Uh, I focused on where the president was going. I focused on the message. I focused on the on the media and those type things. Uh, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, a campaign is is uh, you, you know. And what I did is I thought in terms of the, the Reagan Democrat, which is what my dad had been and what I had been mm-hmm. in my youth. Uh, we're about working people, and so my premise was very simple. People at work should do better than people who don't work. Uh, and, you know, that was not trashing welfare or anything else. It was just simply you have to make sure that people who are working out there get the benefits of their work. And that was a great theme. It's a theme that certain, to a certain extent Trump has used. Uh, and I think to a certain extent that was what Reagan was all about. Reagan, Reagan had such a great love of the country that he could inspire people. He'd come from a, from a, a very – poor uh, environment. His father was a shoe salesman who didn't work most of the time. Reagan had worked, moved 13 times before he went to college uh, and, you know, the extraordinary success in his life, but it came came after a hard burden initially. And so, uh, you know, in essence, that's what, that's what we try to do. We try to basically make sure that we were relating to ordinary people, to the working people across the country. What happened to the Republican Party, I think, is it kind of got... Um, uh, there was always a battle between the conservative Western element and the the Northeastern element, uh, the Rockefeller Republicans, mm-hmm. which obviously Bush was a part of that, and 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 no disrespect to Bush or anybody else who was a part of the Rockefeller. He just was a different group. The, mm-hmm. the, the the Californians, the Westerners, were basically more entrepreneurial, more individualistic, uh, wanted wanted less government interference. Uh, and as Lynn Nofziger said to me one day, he said, "You know, the bottom line here is." The problem with our our group here is we want to do everything Democrats do for 80 percent of the cost. Uh, he said what the, what the Reagan revolution was really about is doing things differently, not doing the same things uh, and, and not making it just cost effective, really changing. And I think to a certain extent, that's what Trump's trying to do. Trump's trying to, you know, and, and nowhere near as skilled as, as Reagan was and didn't have this experience of eight years as governor. But, you know, he's trying to change the agenda and trying to uh, roll back a lot of the government programs that built up over and, the years and, and it's been a different way. I so. think you're right. And, and going back to your dad, he's he's reaching into, which I am interested, reaching into the unions, the trade unions. And going back right. to your, your saying people that, you know, have a job should get the fruits of that job. We, we lost somehow, and I'm I'm interested in how the Republican Party got disconnected or never really did connect much with the trade unions in that working class, and, and and I don't know, maybe Trump will reconnect that or connect that. I'm not sure, but... Well, well the, inter- the interesting thing is, is I, you know, I, I, in addition to being the political director, I spent a lot of time working with the unions because I've been a, a, you know, I've been a union guy myself. I've been a teamster, uh, and, and I, uh, 
you know, work summers moving furniture and stuff like that. So I knew, I knew the movement, obviously having had my dad as part of the movement, uh, uh, you know, they, they, and, and, and Nixon had, had a very strong union movement. Reagan in 1980 had a strong union support, mm-hmm. uh, and 84 after firing the air traffic controllers, which was a very important decision. Uh, it was harder to get union support, but the, the workers, the establishment union people were not necessarily with Reagan, but the workers were. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain extent, that's, you know, you, you've got to always think in terms of what's good for the working man. How, how do you, you know, uh, how do you, and I think what, what's happened to Republicans is Republicans have been pegged very effectively by Democrats that were for the rich and not for the working people. Mm-hmm. And the perfect example is as we debate the health care today, they're talking about we're taking money away, we're taking money away from the poor and giving to the rich instead of the dialogue ought to be. The rich were taxed extremely heavily to basically add benefits to, to the poorest people in the health care. That was the Obamacare. Uh, what we're doing now is not taking any money away from the poor. But we're basically restoring the people who basically had unfair taxes put on them in order to pay for Obamacare that didn't work. Uh, and, you know, if you I, I'm always a believer and I'm not. I'm not a rich guy, and I've been, been around a lot of rich people. I, I don't worry about the rich people. Rich people take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. I worry about the working guy, and the working guy basically needs to, you know, when he when he basically gets his tax bill so extreme that he can't make it with his property taxes or his business taxes or sales taxes or any of the rest of it, but, he, but everything he makes doesn't, doesn't he can't support his family. And I think that's what we've missed the boat on is the economy of the of the of the, of the working people, and that's what I think Trump has tapped into. And do you think we we missed the opportunity to, to you go you mentioned air traffic controllers in that situation, you know the public employee unions versus the private trade unions, and did we miss or not not capitalize on on separating those two and say you know public unions well, are different than a trade union. Yeah. Very, very, very different. A, a trade union every day has to basically go out and, and, and find work. Uh, a public employee never has to find work. He's in work, mm-hmm. uh, and, and most of it's lifetime work and pretty significant benefits. And and, and I, I'm not crapping on anybody that, that's that's in it. It's just it's it's way different. If you got to if you go to work for the state of California, you go to work for Orange County, you go to work for Riverside County, the likelihood is that's the 15 or 20 year or beyond work environment in which you know you can have a pretty safe life mm-hmm. if you're a builder in new york or somewhere else when that building is done you got to go find another building so you got to find another contractor you got to move you got to work hard uh, uh you, you don't get a paycheck every week automatically unless you work and and i think that's in, in essence the difference between the two and obviously uh, uh what, what we need is we need to rethink how we how we train people in america uh one of the reasons i'm a big advocate of the infrastructure program is I think, like my father and like the city I grew up in, Vallejo, out of high school, I could have gone to work in Maryland. I could have gone as an apprentice. I could have been trained to be whatever. My dad was an electrician. Um, my grandfather's electrician. He didn't want me to be an electrician. Didn't want me to be a shipyard worker. Wanted me to go to college. And, and California, the great free education system at that point in time. But a young person today, we, we we have too many kids with college degrees today, and not enough kids with with the technical skills mm-hmm. to go basically be carpenters or or electricians or plumbers or any of the things that uh, they can provide you with a decent living. And, mm-hmm. and we need more and more of that. And unfortunately. A lot of the immigrant workers have come here. They've taken those jobs uh, uh, because they will do those jobs uh, and, and, and they know how to do it. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, we have to rethink our workforce here in America. And we have to basically somewhere along the line, all the progress we're making with robotics and 
you know, the, 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 the technology and what have you. Every time we do these things, we're eliminating jobs and, and, and we need I, to basically I rethink. Totally agree. And, and couldn't we, going back to your apprenticeship idea, I mean, can't we create that apprenticeship system through the union halls and, and so forth and, and connect those? And, and why does that have to be all Democrat? Why, why shouldn't Republicans embrace that? Well, historic, historically, uh, the unions have basically been the training programs, mm -hmm. and it was hard to get into unions uh, for a long time because there wasn't sufficient jobs. So if you didn't have an uncle or a brother or a father or someone who had been in a union, it was hard for you to get an apprentice program. And I think to a certain extent, we have we have to open it up, and, and maybe that's – you say to the unions, this we're going to give you certain funds to train people for the infrastructure programs, uh, but it's got to be opened up. It can't be uncles and cousins and you know, you've got to let, let people have that ability to come in and, and find alternative work. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, uh, and maybe even some of the universities, maybe some of the junior colleges, like mm -hmm. California's tremendous junior college program, can basically have programs of, you know, how to be, uh, you know, used to be, if you weren't a very good student, you, they, they put you in auto repair or something like that. Yeah. Today, it ought to be, if you're smart and a good kid, maybe that's what, we don't want to put you in uh, trade, right. trade. To trade craft is very, very important. And, you know, we've got a whole Silicon Valley. Uh, why do we have to send all the jobs to China to make mm -hmm. all the stuff that they make? Uh, and, and I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, we've got we've got a whole restructuring in the society. And I think to a certain extent, Republicans have to get into the advanced uh, stages of this. Uh, and, and, and I don't know whether it will or not. So. Well, my, I agree and hopefully do. But uh, you've been very generous with your time. But can I ask you a couple Sure. Last few questions of, if you can, I don't want to throw you on the spot, but can you think of a worst political story that where you're, you know, running a campaign or in a campaign and things just went to shit and it's just like, oh my God, how are we going to get out of this or or this is just a disaster and something like I, that. I've, I've, sure, I've had I've had several of those. Sure, had, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I did Ross Perot's campaign in the beginning, and and Ross Perot. Oh, I forgot about that. That's right. Ross Perot started out with this extraordinary. He was at thirty nine percent of the polls. Uh, he was leading Bush and, and Clinton, uh, and basically what happened to him was he started getting treated like Trump did, and and you know the media started going after him, and they took him as a serious presidential candidate, and he just went into a meltdown. He basically had, you know, millions of volunteers, millions of people who believed in him, uh, and he just couldn't couldn't handle it, uh, and went in a total total meltdown. Uh, really, like just and shut out just, and just shut out and literally not not want to do anything uh, uh and the key thing that i that i've always learned about campaigns and i always say this to candidates when i start out i said you know uh i'm at an age and i an experience level that uh at this point if you don't want to listen to me uh don't waste your money and don't waste my time and i've had candidates like that uh i had michelle bachman in a presidential campaign a couple of years ago and you know, to win the Iowa caucus, uh, you need about 40,000, 45,000 votes. We had we won the straw poll, which was unbelievable for an outside candidate, a congresswoman, what have you. And uh, we beat out everybody in the in the race at that point of the straw poll with about 6,000 votes. I had identified these 45,000 strongly support Bachman candidates across the country, uh, across Iowa. And I said, now, here's what you do the rest of the way. You basically go work these people. You go visit them you talk to them the whole race is iowa for you it's iowa if you don't get out of iowa you're, you're through well what happened to her is two weeks after this she's on every talk show after she won the straw poll she goes to florida she meets with jeb bush jeb bush tells her come back to florida you can win the florida primary uh you know she she, she never went back to iowa and at the end of the day she came in last place 
you know, wow. I, I left her. I basically said, if you're not gonna listen to me, I'm not, here's, here's the formula on how to do it. I've done it before. Uh, but all of a sudden she got caught up in the, in the momentum of the post. And what yeah. happens often to candidates is when the momentum catches up the lack of organization, they're done, particularly in presidential races. You see this all the time with his front runners and, and, uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders of the world, you know, come on the fun and all of a sudden they're a new phenomenon. Uh, but you've got to have that organization, that structure. And, uh, so, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of very good candidates. I've had, I've had, uh, uh, you know, probably one of my favorite campaigns, George Nethercutt, who beat Tom Foley, uh, you know, the Speaker I of the House. That. Never, yeah. Tom, George was, a, was an old friend of mine from Washington uh, in the early days, uh, and he'd stayed a friend, uh, you know, total total novice in the game, and went out and beat the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, at, at $11 million to $1 million. What, we had what, how, did that, of, how did that happen? I mean, was it a, was the registration close then, or it wasn't that close. It was just uh, we, 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 we did it. We did it a different way. We basically did a campaign, which when I first went to Spokane and George asked me to help him and, and, I, and I did it as a friend. We first went to Spokane. I, I looked around the town and every building, every federal building is named the Foley building. Uh, Tom Foley <laughs> had represented that district for 30 years. He had been chairman of the Ag Committee, which is probably more important to those people in the speakership. Uh, he, he, had, he had bought the bacon back. But he sort of lost touch with uh, with with the district. So, our slogan was not. We didn't attack him. We basically said, "Thank you, Mr. Speaker, for your 30 years of service. What this district now needs is a listener, not a speaker." Uh, <laughs> That's pretty and, good. And, and uh, you know, it, and it ended up uh, being a, being a couple thousand vote differential. Uh, George was a very tough, good candidate. Worked hard. Uh, uh, Foley basically told me afterwards that it was the best campaign he had ever run. Uh, he said, "I don't go off in the wilderness thinking that I could have done something different." It was a wonderful campaign run against me. And it was the best campaign I ever run. So it was, you know, it was kind of an interesting, interesting huh. time uh, and and fun. A, a good, a good, good campaign. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, I think the key thing is, and I always try to explain to people. You can't win in a district that Republicans can't win in. You know, I, I, I used to say when I ran the congressional committee, I'd say to my staff, don't fall in love with candidates. Uh, don't basically go out there and say, oh, this person is fabulous, which you do. You get you work hard with them. You think they're dynamite. And you come back and you say, gee, we can win this. Uh, and the numbers are totally opposed to it. The district is totally registration is totally opposed to it. There are certain districts Republicans can win and there are certain districts Democrats are going to win. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that if you have a good candidate, he's in the right district uh, uh, or he's running for the right office. And I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, California is the perfect example. I, I hate the system they have in California now. I, I like it where there's a Republican and Democrat uh, going off against each other. And I think we were way better off when that occurred. Uh, uh, As opposed to the open was, primary. The open primary right. to me basically is, is you know, is, is just forcing uh, you know, Democrats to, you know, and, and, and districts, if, if you don't have, if you don't have districts everywhere where you have Republicans competing, you're not going to build a party. Equally as important, I think, was we started talking about, about the demise of the party. We're now to a point, I ran the last 50 state campaign. We don't run 50 state presidential campaigns mm -hmm. anymore. We now pick eight or nine states. We run in the same eight or nine states. Uh, uh, and the reality is, with unlimited amounts of money that you have in a presidential race today, billions and billions of dollars, you can run a 50-state campaign. That advertising across the country helps candidates everywhere. You know, you may not totally alter the, the, the campaign in California, 
you're not going to win California or New York. But at the end of the day, the message is out there that's helping other Republicans and building a base. And so, you know, all the dialogue about changing electoral college and what have you, if I was to make a change in the electoral college, you know, the intent was that smaller states would have more of a role. Um, I would go to a point where every congressional district is for the electoral college there. Whoever wins that district gets that electoral vote. The two senators, the, 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 the at-large ones go to the two senators, the statewide win. And I think then you would have a situation where in a place like California, and you have a chance of winning 20 20 electoral votes, losing the state, but winning 20 electoral votes or 25, you're going to go to that state, you're going to compete, you're going to raise money there, you're going to be there as a presidential candidate, and I think over time would build up uh, the, the base, uh, and I think you know Democrats are never going to want that, but, but it probably doesn't change the outcome in the final analysis, but it does create a two-party system, and that's really where I think we're failing today. I mean, uh, I don't care who's running next time. I don't care. I mean, this this race was the same same way. It was eight or nine states. It just happened that that Trump basically was able to win the wish the Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, and and the uh, the Pennsylvania and and you know that's very that's like drawing to an inside straight. It's uh, it really was. It was actually unbelievable. Did did you think he was going to do that? I was I was running a super PAC, so we were very involved in uh, uh, in in 10 states uh, uh, and, and and what I basically did when I took over the super PAC is you know, super PACs have become big media entities today in which you spend millions and millions more dollars on television and I had some people come to me and they said you know we don't we don't want to do that we want you know you know how to run a campaign we be willing to do this um, and I said you know the bottom line is I only want to run a grassroots campaign if you raise the money for me, which we raised about $50 million, and let me go in and take the 10 targeted states and put a real grassroots effort there, bus tours, volunteers, people, phone banks, all that kind of stuff, find your voters, communicate with your voters, get them to the polls, which was the premise that Jesse Unruh taught me in 1968, uh, is, is what we did. We won, we won every state besides uh, Nevada, we lost Nevada, which is a tough state for us now. But so but going into election night, you oh, so you had a sense going, that this election, might election morning, election morning that day, I was on Fox and, and uh, I was on Maria Bartolo's show, and, and she said to me, Frank Luntz was just on here, and he said Hillary's the nominee. I said Frank Luntz once again is wrong. Uh, Trump is going to win this thing. Uh, the momentum is coming his way. It's, you know, it's kind of a back and forth type thing, but he's ha- he's got the momentum in these key states. And this this the interesting. I was doing Fox commentary. Uh, the exit polls that everybody pays for collectively the networks um, the, trump was way behind when i saw the polls at six o'clock but when i started to watch the returns uh, in miami and elsewhere uh, uh the, the 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 obama coalition was not turning out uh, and and the, and the places where trump had put this tremendous effort uh rural pennsylvania uh michigan wisconsin what have you those voters were turning out and and i think to a certain extent uh, uh you, you could sense it and I early on, you know, like a lot of other people, you know, worried about his candidacy and worried about the mistakes that he had made in the course of the campaign. But I think in the end, there's a lot of Americans just sort of willing to bet on him. A lot of Americans made up their mind that last day. uh, And that's uh, that's what made the difference. So you saw Florida and then you thought, okay, this might happen then. Well, I saw Florida and and and, and the, the vote in the Miami area wasn't turning out the way it should offsetting that when i saw the rural areas of pennsylvania they were turning out in way bigger numbers than uh, they had four years ago for romney uh so you know all of a sudden i said hmm, there's a trend there's a trend going here sort of matching up what i've been hearing uh, from my people uh, and 
obviously huh. uh, that's what it was well that's great well ed thank you so much for your time my, my uh, pleasure great history and i uh, really appreciate your wonderful career and you've been a great asset to not just the republican party but to the body politic as as i ask kids anybody get involved do something because if people just if they walk away turn away from politics that's absolutely the the heart well, of our system so the last the last thing i would say is is i i've always tried to be a, a fighter or a warrior i've never been a hater uh and to me some of my best friends are democrats uh uh, I, I may disagree on their policies. I may argue with them on their policies. Uh, uh, and, but at the end of the day, I don't dislike them. And I, and I, and I think if you're going to have two parties in America, which really is all we have, then you've got to, both parties have an obligation to come up with options. Uh, if, if education is failing across this country, the Republican party has an obligation to have a good education plan and Democrats have a, have to have their education plan. And I think to a certain extent, uh, we need, we need to start talking to each other again. We need to basically, uh, not hate each other, uh, and realize we're all Americans. And if we don't basically move this ball forward, uh, uh, the, the next generation is going to suffer immeasurably. Yep. Um, well said. Thank you very Thank you, much. Pal. Ed. Take care. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to the Ed Rollins episode here on Political Journeys. We will be sending out a new episode next week. And uh, thanks again for listening.